Silver Podcast. My name is Andrew Alex from ESPN Blacksburg. I am joined today by the full crew for like the first time in two weeks. First, in the 757, we have the one and only Ricky LeBlue. Ricky, what's going on, Doug? So as you both know, I was in Blacksburg again this weekend, and I, I much enjoyed it. And I got to spend some time with a good friend of ours. I'll keep his name off the pod for now, but we can talk about it afterwards. And he informed me that I needed to smile more when I was talking in these podcasts. And he thought that that would actually uh, help the podcast be better. And then Saturday happened. <laughs> so I'm going to do my best to smile a bit more in this podcast, even though I don't have much to smile about as it relates to Virginia Tech. Well, some would say that's enough smiling for one year after Saturday. Mike McDaniel of Northern Virginia. How you feeling, buddy? I have recovered from the weekend. <laughs> that's one way to put it. <laughs> I have recovered. Real quick, emotionally before we get into the, real quick before we get into this. So after the game, right? I like I'm in the the uh, post game presser, and um, you know, we're, we're all masked, right? Cause we all, it's like mandatory mask. So we're all wearing masks. We're indoors. And I see this guy walk in, in like a vest, a golf shirt and a Callaway hat. Right. And he sits like three seats to my left. And I'm like, who in the hell's brother is chilling in here in, in the press conference room. Right. Like, I'm, I'm like, I have no idea who this guy is. And like, I exchanged eyes with him. Right. And then we continue listening. And then the, that person goes out and we're waiting for the next guy to come in. And then I look to my left and it's freaking Mike McDaniel. <laughs> like extending a fist bump. <laughs> and I was like, how in the hell is my pod buddy three seats to my left? And I had no effing clue that it was him. You came to a quick realization. You're like, oh, I, I, said, hey, I did. Up, man? <laughs> like, I was like, I, I was shook. I was absolutely shook. In everybody's <laughs> defense, like, there was basically a line in the bathroom. Like everybody before the press <laughs> conference started, everybody's in the bathroom. So there's a line in the bathroom. I speak in basically right as Justin Puente comes to the podium. I'm like, okay, like this be more awkward. So uh, little, it's, it's the first press conference I've been, I've been late to, but I feel like it was pretty quick coming out to this one. So I was, uh, yes, I was it was a lot quicker than the Richmond one. Yeah. Yeah, I was a bit ta- I was a bit taken aback. Certainly quicker and, than the UNC one, and and quite frankly, more poetic in, in terms of the responses than he usually is at that press conference. I yes. would agree. Yeah, I've I've never seen Justin elaborate so deeply in a post game presser, and uh, something I wrote about after the game is I've never seen him as visibly distraught in a post-game press conference in the time that I've covered him as I did on Saturday night. In what was a fantastic night in terms of what the crowd brought to the table, primetime Blacksburg atmosphere, three and 10 sixteenths quarters of good football and ultimately defeat snatched from the jaws of victory, what could have been essentially a free opportunity for Justin Fuente and his coaching staff to gain some credibility with the fan base with a 
what I think we could all agree to be overrated, but prestigious program coming to town and a win on the table, unfortunately, amounted to yet another close call for a fan base that is done with close calls. And we will talk about it all so soon. But first, we have to thank the folks over at Main Street Pharmacy. Main Street Pharmacy in downtown Blacksburg is the pharmacy that you want to go to if you want a healthcare provider that truly cares about you. Be a neighbor, not a number. Our good friend, Dr. Jeremy Counts, and God love him, his wonderful staff will take care of everything you need. So we were all there for the first time in a number of years. All three of us were at the game. Ricky, you've had the least chances to attend these games in person recently. So I want to turn to you first. 10,000 foot view summarize for me what your initial takeaways from the game were. How did you feel after the game? How, how does it all relate to the big picture? Wasn't really surprised, unfortunately. Um, over the last few years, I think tech fans have become pretty jaded and probably rightfully so. We tech fans have just seen too many games like this go by the wayside in clutch situations. And uh, Virginia Tech has not played very good situational football on either end um, over the last few seasons. And it shows in these types of games, right? Games that where you've You've played well enough to win. You've earned yourself an opportunity to, to win in in the clutch. And when it comes down to closing it up and, and putting a bow on it, you're not able to do it. And that's exactly what happened in this game. Um, the the win doesn't – or excuse me, the loss doesn't mean as much for the, the, the season, right? Losing to Notre Dame does not affect Virginia Tech's coastal division chance, chances in terms of the standings. What it does do is it is another demerit. It's another setback that Virginia Tech has to try and cope with. And this is a program that has at times been able to handle adversity and at other times hasn't. We've seen them respond to adversity well, and we've seen them just fall flat on their face. And after this game, I don't really know what direction this, this team is going to go. Uh, things are stacked against them. There are injuries mounting up, especially at quarterback. Uh, the offense is not getting any better. And at this point, it probably isn't. The defense kind of fell apart in the late stretches of the game. Dax Hollyfield is out for the first half next week. So you put all this together, and Virginia Tech is in a situation where their backs are against the wall, but they're also in the driver's seat, right? It, it, it's, it is the weirdest position I've ever seen a Virginia Tech football team in. Virginia Tech still has zero conference losses. North Carolina has three. Virginia has two. Miami has one, but they're sub 500 at two and three. So even though Tech has not looked all that great over the last few weeks, and for that reason, things are kind of getting shaky in Blacksburg. 
they're still in the driver's seat to win the damn division, which I don't know if that's just a stroke of luck or if that's just this division being the worst division in, in power five. Yeah, Virginia Tech is uh, – if Virginia Tech were to beat Pittsburgh on Saturday, every other coastal team would have to win at least two games to overtake Virginia Tech, would have to play essentially two games better the rest of the season to win the coastal. So Ricky's right. I mean, Virginia Tech with a win against Pittsburgh, as unlikely as it may seem to some fans, would put Virginia Tech not only in the driver's seat, but in commanding position to go to the ACC championship game. And it sounds ridiculous considering – how the team has looked at times. Yeah. But in, in a lot of other ways, like my, my takeaway from the game on Saturday is very similar to Ricky's. Like, am I surprised Virginia tech lost a close game? No. <laughs> on a micro level at this point, micro, you expect it. Like, right. <laughs> I mean, look on a micro level, this program under Justin Fuente has been largely game to game over the last, you know, three plus years. It's been one week. They look great. One week, they look terrible. One week, they look okay and get a win. One week, they look okay and lose. And I thought Virginia Tech, by and large, in this game against Notre Dame, played pretty well. The issue is that situationally, much like in the West Virginia game, Virginia Tech did not play particularly well. And we can go into the specifics of that later. But it's always the situational stuff with with this team under Justin Fuente and this staff. It's always situational football that seems to come back and bite Virginia Tech in the ass. Saturday was no different. We can point to a number of situations throughout the game. The bottom line is when Virginia Tech needed stops late and they leaned on their defense, a defense that by and large has played pretty well over the course of the season, I think we'd all agree, the defense didn't come through, right? On two consecutive possessions at the end of the game in the fourth quarter, whether it was the defense was tired or the defense simply just didn't play well in those particular possessions, it doesn't matter. They gave up 11 points in the final four minutes and Virginia Tech lost the football game. And the offense, well, I mean, the offense goes three and out on that possession that was sandwiched in between there. Uh, But I I look at this and I say, you know what? In late stages of the game, the defense let Virginia Tech down. But in other stages throughout the game, the offense let Virginia Tech down. This is a roller coaster game to game at a micro level. At a macro level, the depth is an issue on this roster. And we've talked about that a million times. Everybody's talking about it. no matter what podcast you listen to, everybody knows what the issues are with this football program right now. There's simply not enough playable depth, whether that's between recruiting issues, between guys lost in the transfer portal, whether it's guys just not producing to a level that the coaching staff thought that they would when they came to Blacksburg. There's simply just not enough playable depth on this roster right now. And it's mounting across several positions but especially a quarterback where Virginia Tech essentially thought that Braxton Burmeister with dead arm was the best option at quarterback in the late stages of the game on Saturday night. That's where this is at right now in the quarterback room. It is not good for Virginia Tech in that regard. But at a, mac- at a macro level, we know what the issues are. At a micro level, this was just another game under Justin Fuente. Like Ricky said, this, this is just another result that we've become all too accustomed to. But at the same time, this game in particular, outside of like optics from a, this would be great for Justin Fuente to get, or this would be nice for the program to have another primetime night win at home in one season, like their second one this season, this would have been. Um, if you count that 6 p.m. North Carolina kick where all eyes were on you, like 
outside of that, this game really didn't matter all that much in terms of where Virginia Tech's trying to go. This Hokies team isn't, was, isn't and, and wasn't going into this game, going to the college football playoff. You know, once you lose to West Virginia, a team that's probably going to go seven and five, that goes all, all but out the window. And then when you look at the state of the ACC, that, that was never a question. And nobody thought this team was that good anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference. The, the question now moving forward is, does this impact Virginia Tech? And does the injuries that were accumulated in this game and some of the losses outside of injuries, like the Dax Hollyfield targeting college, I still don't really agree with, but it is what it is, right? He's out for the first half against Pittsburgh. How much does that impact this game against Pittsburgh this weekend? And what does Braxton Burmeister look like? And does laying it all out on the line against Notre Dame really make a whole lot of sense? To me, it doesn't, right? And now you have Burmeister in a precarious situation. And this is what the coaching staff was battling, you know, not to get too rambly, but we were worried that Burmeister could get hurt, right? That was a concern of the coaching staff. That's why the coaching staff didn't want to run him. But at the same time, I think we all acknowledge that the best version of the Virginia Tech offense is the one where Braxton Burmeister makes an impact with his legs. So, you know, it, it kind of went to hell in a handbasket, and you're caught in a really tough spot if you're the Virginia Tech coaching staff. That's kind of where this thing's at right now. I mean, gosh, you guys both got into so many details of what we're going to talk about here in the future that they matter and, and they're going to play such a big role in not only what the end result of this season looks like in terms of wins and losses, but ultimately what Justin Fuente's tenure at Virginia Tech looks like, whether it continues whether it doesn't, what the future holds for this entire program. The 10,000-foot view of this game, though it shouldn't mean much, because like I said before, this seemed like a goodwill opportunity for the coaching staff, but it ultimately ends up being a microcosm of what we've seen so many times before. Look, I'm tired of being close. You're talking to the guy that's a fan of Louis frickin' Oosthuizen in golf. I am tired of being close. I am tired of moral victories. I am tired of second place finishes. And look, but Louie is not tired of cashing those second place paychecks. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I get I, I do not get $1.2 million every time Virginia Tech has a close loss. Clemson 2016 ACC championship game, ultimate national champions. Close was cute. I walked away from that game with a smile on my face competing for a half against Notre Dame in 2019. Oh, Ryan Willis has got a lot of heart Miami in 2020. Oh, Brad Cornelson just can't call plays at the end. Notre Dame in 2021 with all the examples I previously mentioned, it's the Irish. So maybe the saying is fitting. But close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And at the end of the day, that's a loss on the schedule. And there are so many fans I have heard. And by the way, I'll preface this with saying, I don't think the season's over. I think the Pitt game is so much more important than this game. And I would take a win over Pitt versus a win over Notre Dame any day. Don't get me wrong. But for those saying, oh, we're just a red zone touchdown against West Virginia and any one of many different possible case scenarios that we will talk about in just a few minutes here on this podcast away from being five and zero. 
Well, if ifs and buts were candies and nuts, then we'd all have a Merry Christmas. But alas, Virginia Tech is three and two. We have had one game, one game, where we walked away truly happy about the result. No one was truly enthusiastic against Middle Tennessee. Of course, West Virginia, another devastating loss of the nature of this one. Richmond was nearly more disappointing than Notre Dame, and Notre Dame is what we are talking about right now. So, yes, I know that before the season, if you told me three and two, I would have said, yeah, that's exactly what I predicted. But in a sense, the only thing that makes me more enthusiastic about the result potentially of this season for Virginia Tech and Justin Fuente is not what I have seen on the field from the Hokies, but what I have seen on the field from their opponents, knowing that there is an opening there and there's still time to capitalize. The question is, is this the coaching staff and the personnel that can do it? And the weeks to come will obviously answer that question. I, I, I still have some faith. The injuries, as you mentioned, Michael, do not give me much confidence. I want to get to coaching decisions. And this is a question to both of you, so you're both free to answer however you want. I will go through three decisions. Number one, Jermaine Waller, pick six. Virginia Tech goes up by a point. They have the opportunity to make it a three-point game. False start. Connor Blumrick in the game. They back up to the eight-yard line. Rather than take the points, they go for two with a quarterback that hasn't thrown the ball much. Do not convert. Ultimately, that point very well may have mattered. Number two, Braxton Burmeister scores what could have been a heroic touchdown. What I will call a potential Kirk Gibson moment for him, given the state that he was in. And rather than try to make it a two-score game with a two-point conversion from the regular two-point conversion line, he opts to make it an eight-point game. No analytics agree with that. Number three, which I personally think is the most excusable given the situation. However, the game ends up at a loss, so we have to talk about it. The ball is one yard away from a first down where you can not necessarily ice the game, but you can get pretty close. And they choose to punt despite the fact that Notre Dame had run rough shot on the defense just one drive before. All of these decisions fall on the coaching staff, gentlemen. Which of them do you find to be the most egregious? Which of them do you feel like you could excuse? I think I am the only person that has publicly said that they didn't hate any of these decisions. Uh, Virginia Tech didn't lose because of any of those calls. So let's start with the first one. Tech obviously has the false start, so they're from, what, the seven? Um, you've got Connor Blumrickin at quarterback. At that point, your defense is playing exceptional football, and you're looking at it like Notre Dame will be lucky to get in field goal position at that point. Um, so if they do, you want to be able to cover your ass. So a two-point lead does you no good, right? So I don't have an issue going for, going for two there. Like Fuente said, it's 15, something like 50 seconds left in the third quarter, so it's basically on your fourth quarter call sheet. So you evaluate it as a fourth quarter decision for the most part. Um, 
going up two doesn't do you any good. And considering the way that your defense had been playing, you felt like Notre Dame getting into field goal range was the only way they were going to score because Virginia Tech had put the clamps on. Um, Burmeister scores, which again was a absolutely phenomenal play. And I don't know how much we're going to talk about Burmeister in this game, but I got mad props for the kid. Like he played his ass off as well as he could considering the circumstances. So Braxton Burmeister props to you, sir, for going out there and busting your ass. So tech goes up uh, seven and uh, they have a, a chance to go for two there. I don't know what the analytics say on this. I'm not well read into that. But as far as I'm concerned, taking an eight-point lead so you don't lose, theoretically, in regulation, seems like the prudent decision to me. Um, because you, you – I mean, Ricky, way, you, think, you think that Brian Kelly is going to go for two at the end of the game rather than go to overtime? I, I don't know what he would do. I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I feel a lot more comfortable with an eight point lead than basically taking a 50, 50 shot at a, at a seven point lead or a nine point lead. So I, I'm fine with the eight point lead there. And then fourth and one um, at your own, what 29 yard line. I'm not going for that. Absolutely not. Tech's defense had played exceptional football up until the drive prior you don't think that they're going to go out there and, and get run all over again. Uh, don't put your defense in a position where they basically have to force a turnover. Uh, I, no, I have no problem with them punting the ball there either. So there are plenty of reasons that Virginia Tech lost this football game, right? Tech lost because the defense folded down the stretch. Tech lost because they haven't been able to produce points. Tech lost because their quarterback got knocked out for a significant period of time. I don't think that Tech lost because of these coaching decisions. I really don't. The the one that I'm most upset with is the one that we didn't even mention. It was kicking a field goal from the one-yard line at the beginning of the second quarter uh, where you could have made it 14 nothing. I mean, early in the game, Virginia Tech's defense was playing really well. I mean, played really well the entire first quarter. You know, Hokies led 7 nothing. You had first and goal from the one, second and goal from the one third and goal from the one don't punch it in and then you kick an extra then you kick what's basically shorter than an extra point for the 19 yard field goal to go up 10 to nothing I was more upset with that I mean run it on first down that doesn't work fine second down I didn't understand that play call with Blumrick you bring Blumrick in you have him roll out and throw an incomplete pass didn't agree with that third down Burmeister throws a fade to Trey Turner you know, better throw, probably completed. But I, I hate running goal line fade. You're at the one, just run it right up the gut. Now, I get that, you know, you might be concerned about Notre Dame's size, but if you can't, if you can't get a yard, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to win the game anyway. So at least give it a shot. So I was really actually, quick, that's been, that's been an issue with Virginia Tech through the entirety of the Justin Fuente era is, is goal line and short yardage situations. For They've sure. Been, They've been terrible in those situations, and it, it really is inexcusable. Yeah, and it's actually the reason why Virginia Tech's lost two of their games this year is because they haven't been able to execute. I'm not talking specifically uh, – well, I mean, red zone's been an issue, but short yardage in general has just been an issue. Yeah. It's, 
you know, you could point to individual situations in the West Virginia and Notre Dame games where red zone specifically has been a problem, but really it's been short guards in its entirety. You think back to West Virginia, not only, you know, the, the red zone play at the end or the red zone play calling at the end, but also earlier in that game, Virginia Tech had a fourth and short and couldn't convert. You know, they, they ran Burmeister out shotgun right up the middle and everybody knew what, what was coming. That didn't work out. Uh, same issue on Saturday. So that was the issue that I, that, you know, that was a play call that I wasn't as big of a fan of was, was kicking the field goal there as far as the second half stuff. So when Jermaine Waller ran the interception back for a touchdown to go up by a point, I was initially okay with the decision to go for two. I didn't think it was too early. I didn't feel like in that particular situation, you're chasing points, but then once the false start happened, I think given the fact that Burmeister was out of the game at that point, you were rolling with Blumrick and we, based on what we've seen anyway, we haven't been too comfortable, you know, watching Blumrick try to throw the football. I'm not sure I would have gone for two in that situation. I think you just kicked the extra point. Uh, I, but I can see both sides of it. But I think once you commit the false start, you know, the, the likelihood of converting there goes down significantly when you don't have your starting quarterback in the game. So I had a problem with that, but I don't think it cost Virginia Tech the game. Uh, I think I would have gone for two after the Braxton Burmeister touchdown run, because while it ultimately didn't matter, um, you know, I, it could have been 30 to 21 and ultimately it was just 29, 21 after, you know, they kicked the extra point. It could have been 30 to 21 there if they had gone for two and converted and Virginia tech would have been up by two scores. Now, the reason why that's significant, even though Notre Dame ended up scoring 11 points, rendering a final score moot is because it changes the game script for Notre Dame. They now need to press a little bit more offensively down two scores with four minutes left. It just kind of changes the situation of the game. So I think that could have changed the calculus there from a play calling standpoint for Brian Kelly and Tommy Reese, which is why I think in that situation, if you have an opportunity to go up two scores, I, I think you do it. But again, I, I don't think that that's, that's the thing that caused Virginia Tech to lose the game either. And then as far as the fourth and one is concerned at, at your own 28 or whatever it was, it was a tie game. What, what are we, that's not even a decision. That's not even a decision. I mean, the, the fan base saying you got to go for it there. They would have, it would have been off with Justin Puente's head if they had gone for it and didn't get it. I mean, we, we talk about the, the red zone play calling and I, you know, I talk about the first half situation, how I wasn't happy that they kicked a, a field goal there. But if Justin Puente isn't confident they could pick up a yard there, why would he be confident they could pick up a yard against Notre Dame's front late in the fourth quarter when, you know, you're, you're deeper into the game, everybody's more tired. I mean, in that situation, you're way less likely to pick up a yard than you are early in the game. So that's not even a decision. Now, if Virginia Tech's leading at that point, and you're like, all right, we need a yard, and we think we can, we can hold on to the ball and ice the clock, Maybe you think about it a little bit more, but even then in that situation, I think Virginia Tech punts it away considering how the defense had played for the entirety of the game. You should be more concerned about the fact that Virginia Tech couldn't get a defensive stop on those last two possessions rather than the fact that they went for it on fourth and a yard, didn't go for it on fourth and a yard from their own 27. That's not even a decision. you got to punt that ball away. you got to punt that ball away. And to Peter Moore's credit, and Peter Moore's been an excellent punter all year and he had another great game Saturday, he pinned Notre Dame back there and credit to Jack Cohn in that Irish offense for marching right back up the field and, and putting Jonathan Dorr in a situation to kick the game winning field goal. So Notre Dame played better situational football in the latter stages of the game on Saturday. And that's where you see the coaching come into play where, you know, Notre Dame didn't really panic. They've been there before, you know, down 
late in games and they figured out a way to pull it out. And Virginia Tech just can't consistently do that. And I, and I think that's what we saw rear its head on, on Saturday night. Look, I asked the question just to get your opinion. Cause I also agree that I would be the first person coming on this podcast right now today. If Virginia Tech had gone for it on fourth and one from their own 27 with a minute and 56 seconds left, not converted and giving them the free field goal. The reason I ask is because the result ultimately the same. And this was a guy in Justin Fuente who due to, and maybe you guys can, for me, if I'm misquoting his own pride and stubbornness or a couple of synonyms for that. Pistoffishness. Pistoffishness. That's a good word. I should use that more often. Due to his own pistoffishness, decided to go for it on a fourth and eight situation. That's what it is. You had your backup quarterback in, who you clearly have not trusted to throw passes in the past. If it was fourth and eight generally, and I asked you, Mike and Ricky, fourth and eight, Connor Blumrick throws the ball. What are the chances? You probably wouldn't say it's greater than 50%. Now add the condensed nature of the field, the pressure of a two-point conversion situation. And clearly, Justin Fuente, at one point in the game, felt moderately bullish about his offense. That's the only reason I ask about that fourth down situation. That and, of course, the fact that Notre Dame got the yards that they needed anyway. It didn't matter one way or the other. But we talked about the defense. So I want to get deeper into that now. This is a defense that started hot. We were all watching the same game. Myself, Michael, Ricky, all of our listeners. And when that defense came out in the first quarter, you felt to yourself, wow, the optimistic game preview of Virginia Tech Notre Dame is coming to life. Notre Dame's offense ain't all that. Virginia Tech's got a good defense. 26 yards, was that the number? Something around 26 yards. I think Virginia Tech had a 100-yard advantage and a 10-point lead at one point there. End of the first quarter, maybe early into the second quarter. And then it suddenly all starts to fall apart. Notre Dame ended up having, in terms of yards per play, a better-than-average day. Despite 26 total yards in the first quarter, and of course, we can turn to the end of the game where Jack Cohn worked like he was playing his own scout team D. What happened both from the beginning of the game to the center of the game when Notre Dame picked up some steam and then from the center of the game to the end of the game where Notre Dame looked unstoppable? Was it coaching? Was it Notre Dame out coaching our own coaching staff and making adjustments? Was it the sheer tiredness of the players. Can we blame this all on the potentially unfair rejection of Dax Hollyfield? I'm looking for answers. So before the game started, I said that if, if Jack Cohn was starting at quarterback for Notre Dame, that was a, a plus for Virginia Tech. And I said that because Jack Cohn is a statue, right? So Jack Cohn, um, cannot threaten you with his legs on a serious level. And 
we saw that early on. Virginia Tech was able to tee off and go after the pass, go after the quarterback. They played man to man on the outside, and they told Jack Cohn to beat them because uh, Tech trusts their DBs in coverage, and they felt like they could get to Jack Cohn, especially since he is stationary. And it, it worked. They were able to get pressure on Jack Cohn. Notre Dame wasn't able to run the football because Tech was loading up the box, and the receivers weren't able to get separation. And then when Tyler Buckner comes in, that's when the game changes. And Justin Hamilton took too long to get adjusted to a, an entirely different offense. Tyler Buckner's legs changed the game late in the first quarter and into the second. And once Virginia Tech started to make those adjustments, Notre Dame's offense slowed in late in the second quarter and into the third. Um, Virginia Tech was able to box Tyler Buckner up pretty well. And we saw the freshman make a couple mistakes, including that pick six to Jermaine Waller. Um, but when Jack Cohn comes back in late in the game, it's almost like Virginia Tech didn't go back to their original game plan and make the right adjustments. It was like they were still stuck in the same defensive scheme that they were playing against Tyler Buckner, and you can't do that. Jack Cohn is a lot more capable of picking you apart when you're sitting back in zone coverage and waiting for the quarterback to make a mistake, whereas Tyler Buckner clearly is not as capable of doing that. And that's why you saw Virginia Tech go away from man-to-man against Tyler Buckner because he can beat you with his legs with DBs looking away from the quarterback. With Jack Cohn, you want those DBs locked in on, on those receivers and on those tight ends, and you want everyone else on the quarterback because you know he's not going to be able to move, and it's a lot easier to hit a stationary target. Virginia Tech didn't make those adjustments once Buckner got taken out of the game and I think that that's what cost them down the stretch. Everything that Ricky said, except let me add this too. Virginia Tech's defensive line, nobody's afraid of them. Nobody's afraid of them. Nobody with a competent offensive line is afraid of them. And I get Notre Dame's statistics didn't look very good coming into this game, but look at the caliber of competition that Notre Dame had played. They had played a Wisconsin team that has a decent defensive front. They played a Cincinnati team with a very good defense and good front seven. Notre Dame looked at Virginia Tech and said, you know what? We are not afraid of that front, right? We are not afraid of that front. And they were able to run the ball, run the ball, run the ball, run the ball. And eventually, Virginia Tech's defense wore out. And you got to credit Notre Dame's offensive line. Certainly the offensive line for Notre Dame is, is not as good this year as it has been in the past. They sent multiple guys to the pros and that's what happens. Notre Dame's got some, some good guys there. It's going to take them a little while to, to gel. They're a younger offensive line, but these guys are very solid high end recruits and Brian Kelly coach Notre Dame teams generally have good enough offensive lines and hadn't been a very good offensive line to date this year, but they had the horses there, right? And they felt like they could take advantage of a smaller Virginia Tech defensive front. And over the course of four quarters, that's what they did. And credit for and, and that's not to say Virginia Tech's defensive line has been awful all year. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when you face bigger offensive lines like Notre Dame, they're going to feel like they can impose their will even when they haven't been able to do it against other teams. And I think that Virginia Tech's defensive line is not feared right now. 
I think we saw that over the course of, you know, four quarters eventually come to fruition where Notre Dame was able to have a bit more success on the ground than they've had really in the first month and a half of the season. Okay, Mike, I, I want to push back a little bit, though, on this one because the game plan for North Carolina, if you're Virginia Tech, both offensively and defensively was executed perfectly. Offensively, they controlled the clock. Defensively, they put pressure on a superior quarterback in Sam Howell and kept him off the field. Amari Barno and Taiwan Garbett and the rest of those members of the defensive front were a huge part of that. Six acts in that game. It wasn't that long ago. We all remember against West Virginia and a quarterback in Jarrett Dogie, who, if you want to call Jack Cohn a statue, I don't know what we're going to call Jarrett Dogie. He's one of the more immobile quarterbacks in Power 5 football. There's a reason that West Virginia has yet to win a Big 12 game. Two sacks against West Virginia. Against Notre Dame, the same. Two sacks. Notre Dame allowed more sacks threefold against Toledo. Running the ball, albeit not by much. Better yards per carry number against Toledo as well. Is the State of the Union truly not good for this defensive front? I know that this was a group that had a lot of question marks coming into the season, and then we look at one game, we throw a giant Band-Aid on it, and we say, look what we did against North Carolina. We're fine. This is actually the strength of the team. Is that not true? Because now as we look at the results that North Carolina has had against the likes of Georgia Tech and Florida State, Unfortunately for Justin Fuente and the clout that he was looking to gain from that game, it's going down the drain. Do we have to start to disregard that result? Well, all I'll say is Notre Dame allowed 24 tackles for loss, excluding sacks throughout the first five games of the season. This is from Pete Sampson, uh, Notre Dame writer for The Athletic. Irish offense allowed 24 tackles for loss, excluding sacks in the season's first five games. So that's roughly five per game. That's horrific, right? Not very good. Outside of the two sacks that Virginia Tech had, Notre Dame allowed zero tackles for loss on Saturday night. Now, some of it we can say, okay, Notre Dame's offensive line improved. But I think a lot of it we can say Virginia Tech's defensive line didn't live up to the standard that I think a lot of people had for it. And I think I think Virginia Tech's defensive line has been fine this year, but you got to look at the quality of competition. And I throw that Carolina game out the window a little bit. They had an entire offseason to prepare. And we talked about it a million times. This team's very, very good at advanced scouting. They're also not very good, weirdly, off bye weeks. And we're in the middle of the year now. And Virginia Tech's defensive line, they've been fine, but they've played Middle Tennessee, they've played Richmond. They've played West Virginia that's had kind of an up and down offensive line and the defensive showing in that West Virginia tech in the West Virginia game. Wasn't that good anyway. So it's just the defense has been fine, right? By and large, the defense has been really good, but it hasn't been perfect. And, and that's all I'm saying. I just don't think it was perfect on Saturday night. Look, first of all, when you say this team isn't very good off bye weeks, that is an understatement insofar as under Justin Fuente, they couldn't be worse, aren't they? 0-6 off bye weeks in the Fuente era? 
They have not won a game off a of bye week under Justin Fuente. So, yes, they technically could not be worse, which is that's egregious, by the way. And a little sneak preview of our preview coming out in a couple of days. Pat Narduzzi, seven and two off bye weeks. That's what he's <laughs> yeah. off of going into this game, a bye yes. week. Um, and yeah, I know the defense, the defense is the strength of the team for sure, but this isn't Clemson where you no, have an elite no, no. defense and a below average offense. No, 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 no. All I'm, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is the defensive line could have been a little better on Saturday. <laughs> That's basically a longer short of it. Could have been a little bit better. Ricky, what do you got to say? Norell Pollard, Josh Fuga and Jordan Williams have a combined two tackles for loss and one and a half sacks. That's not going to get it done. This was a unit that I thought would be a plus for Virginia Tech. I thought that Jordan Williams was going to make more of an impact. I thought that Josh Fuga, Mario Kendricks, Norell Pollard were going to be disruptive enough to provide enough pressure up front and to shoot enough gaps. We're not seeing it. And that interior line has been pretty bad, if we're being honest. Amari Barno is putting up kind of average numbers for him. I, I think a lot of us would have expected him to, to put up some really big numbers, but he still has four and a half sacks so far this year. Um, I think he's got like five tackles for loss. So he's he's been decent, but he can't do it on his own. And at some point, those interior guys – have to find ways to impact the football game, and they're just not doing it right now. Yeah, and I, I think that the big game against North Carolina and the impact that he had, and to some extent the impact that he had last year for sure, especially in terms of tackles per loss, made people overestimate the ability of Amare Barno to impact each and every football game. And I do believe that one day – if he develops in the right way, Amari Barno is going to be a good pro because he's got the size. He, he, he's a prototype. He's got the body type. He's got to put on a little more muscle for sure, but he's got the speed. He's got the build. But at the end of the day, this is a guy who, what, 15 months ago was not playing that position. Coaches can scheme around a guy like that. But I, I think we've been very negative here. So I think that we do need to turn to a moment of gratitude. Because how freaking good is Jermaine Waller? Where would this team be right now without Jermaine Waller? I mean, he did get beat for a big pass early on in the game. <laughs> but right, I'll all, take the four interceptions. In all seriousness, he's been pretty good. And uh, it's a shame that his star performances are being wasted um, in terms of the win-loss record. But no, Jermaine is very good. Uh, if he can stay healthy, I think he can be a, a pretty productive player uh, for the rest of his tech career, which will probably last all of two-ish months. Um, he's going to go to the league, and he's probably going to be an early to mid-round draft pick, and I think that he'll be able to catch on. He's, he's, been, he's been excellent. And when you can put him on half the field and then rotate in Dorian Strong, Armani Chapman, Breon Murray on the other side, it, it, it just changes things for your defense. And I don't think that Virginia Tech safeties have been very good, especially in coverage. Tay Daly has been a bit of a disappointment, if we're being honest. Uh, I think Nasir Peebles has been productive, but Tay Daly has not provided what you're looking for. 
at a, at a, you know, one of the safety positions. And Jermaine Waller's still getting it done without dominant safety help over the top. So give him credit. And when he picked that off, because at that point, I thought Tech was about to just fall apart. I mean, everything was going wrong on the offensive end. The defense was starting to splinter. Jermaine Waller comes up with the play of the game at that point. And I I really did think Tech was going to pull it out at that point. I really did. Um, And it was a a fun atmosphere in, in that moment because you felt like Virginia Tech fans had not just a sense of joy and excitement, but a sense of relief because they felt like all of the horrors that they were living through their head for the past 20 minutes were not going to come true. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Preview of a preview, because we're on an inception on this podcast. Jermaine Waller is going to have to have a big day. Virginia Tech is going to beat Kenny Pickett and Pitt the way that he's playing right now. Mike, Jack Cohn, and this is per Brandon Patterson, Tech sideline. Eight for nine when the pocket was clean. One for three with pressure. Down the stretch, did you feel that Virginia Tech should have brought a little more of a blitz? Yeah, because the defensive line wasn't getting home. Yeah, I think they should have. I, I, and this, this kind of goes to Ricky's point. They didn't adjust when Cohn came back in. Because what were we okay. seeing early in the game when Jack Cohn was in? We were seeing pressure on the quarterback. And that wasn't and just... we were seeing man-to-man on the outside. You were seeing man coverage, straight up man on the outside, and Virginia Tech was bringing five and six at a time to get into Jack Cohn's face. Because those statistics that you just called out, Andrew, that's the, that's the bread and butter of Jack Cohn, right? When he's got a clean pocket, he can make the throws. And that's been the story on Cohn in the early part of Notre Dame season. If you think back to some of the games that Notre Dame's played and you go back and look at the stats, yes, Notre Dame's offense has struggled, right, for a good portion of the year coming into this football game. But Jack Cohn had not outside of the Cincinnati game. Jack Cohn had actually been quite good with the exception of the Cincinnati game. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was getting a clean pocket. Notre Dame's issues was totally based on the – not totally, but – largely based on the fact they were unable to run the football consistently. That was Notre Dame's issue coming into this football game. Uh, The fact that they were able to do that and able to protect Jack Cohn a bit better than I think a lot of us anticipated was a big reason why when Cohn came back in late, they were able to have success in the passing game. Virginia Tech, like Ricky alluded to earlier, but we'll say it more specifically here, they could have played a bit more man coverage late and they could have brought a bit more home on Jack Cohn late and they didn't. And that's why he had success on the final two drives of the game. Yeah. Tired secondary. You got to bring some guys home and Virginia tech failed to make that adjustment and failed to do it. And Notre Dame was successful uh, in spite of that. Okay. I want to turn to the offensive side of the ball. And I know we're running long, but we've had a lot of good things to say so far. So we're going to keep going for a few more minutes here. In terms of the running game, look, I had nine people stay at my house for this Notre Dame game. It gets a little bit crowded. Sometimes you got to say, there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Get the hell out. That's kind of how I feel about the running back rotation for Virginia Tech right now because you got a freshman in Malachi Thomas. You got Keyshawn King, who has been this, that, and the other for the better part of 
I guess two years because he wasn't a factor in 2020. You had Jalen Holston rushing for negative five yards on the day. And meanwhile, Raheem Blackshear, eight carries for 35 yards. Now, to put that in perspective, the other three that I mentioned, 12 carries for 13 yards. Are they misusing this running back group? Because it, it, I think we've known that Blackshear is the most dynamic in the group. He certainly has the multitude of usages there in terms of the passing game. He had two catches as well. But he was the best back on the day, and they didn't turn to him time and time again. They kept trying to go by committee. I've always liked the by committee approach because it allows you to go with the hot hand, but that's just not what they did. How'd you feel? I don't feel like there's enough talent in this running back room to really care about who's getting the carries, to be quite honest. I'm a huge fan of Raheem Blackshear. I love his his skill set. I think he can be an impact player. I think he's being I think he's best utilized in the passing game and trying to get him the ball in space rather than running him in between the tackles. But you look at the rest of this running back room, at least as it's currently constituted, Keyshawn King can hold on to the ball. Uh, Jalen Holston, when he's not complaining about his usage on Twitter, is not being consistent on the field. Malachi Thomas is a freshman, so you don't really know what you're getting out of him yet. Virginia Tech has over-recruited this running back position for the last, what, three to four years, and they have not been able to find a difference maker through their recruiting. And the best running back that they've had was a flash-in-the-pan graduate transfer who they got lucky was looking for a spot to raise his profile, and now he is earning a spot in the NFL at the moment, and that is Khalil Herbert. So I'm not really sure that Virginia Tech is misusing this running back room because, quite frankly, I'm not sure there's a lot to use. See, I, I, agree, with, I agree with the point about the, the talent thing and not being able to find a consistent running back and Khalil Herbert's stead, but I actually feel the opposite that you do, Ricky. I think they're using too many running backs. Like, I mean, maybe they are. It's just that I'm at, I'm at the point now where I don't really care. Right. Because I've seen, I've seen enough of all of these running backs, and the only one that has been able to make anything happen is Raheem Blackshear. And he's not the, he has not made those things happen as a more of a traditional running back running in between the tackles. Yeah. He's been a bit more of a gimmick, a, a gimmick option, a, a kind of an offensive weapon type guy. He's not your traditional running back. All those guys that fit that role, they just haven't done it. Okay, well, if you're not able to use a traditional running back in that sense, why keep trying? Again, I, hey, I'll carries for 13 yards. You're, you're yeah. not going to find any complaints here. Like, <laughs> like yeah. It's just, you know, like it, it's at the point now where we've seen this in, in Virginia Tech's offenses under Justin Fuente without Khalil Herbert, right? If you, if you remove him from history, Justin Fuente's running backs have not been all that productive. They couldn't find a way to use Trayvon McMillan properly. Jalen Holston has never developed as a running back. Deshaun McLeese had a few good stretches of one season, and that was about it. None of the other running backs that Justin Fuente recruited developed into, into anything in terms of being consistent players in college. So you're at this point now where they've they've brought in all these guys and they've had all this turnover at running back and and they're just not getting any production out of it. Yeah, that that's kind of and 
again, I don't, Ricky, I, I agree with you, like on your, on your larger point about the running back room. My thing is like, just in my opinion, I would just give, I would just give the ball to Raheem Blackshear and Jalen Holston and quit playing this game where we got to put like 17,000 different running backs on the field. Now, the issue Virginia Tech has now is Malachi Thomas, I believe, with his uh, action that he saw the other night, has now burned his red shirt, if I'm not mistaken. So that makes things a little bit more interesting. I don't know what the point of that was. Like, why, why would we do that, right? Why, why, why do that? I don't – if you're not going to give him a huge role, there's no point. I mean, I have the same thought with Dewan Lofton. I had the same thought with, like, Jalen Jones, who I know hasn't played a ton to date. Uh you know, a lot of these guys, if you're not going to play them significant snaps and that includes special teams, like if they're, if they're a good special teams player, fine. And you got to use them that way. Fine. We've seen a lot of really good Virginia tech players who have played on special teams early in their careers before forming out into uh, really good position players at their natural spot. Like if you got that role for them, fine. But as far as you like using Malachi Thomas at running back, like if they're not going to do that on a, on a consistent basis, I don't, I'm sorry. Like, I don't see the point. Look. Oh, by the way, not to cut you off, Andrew, I'm done with the Keyshawn King experiment. I'm done with that. I, I don't know. <laughs> he has, I'm sure he's a nice kid. He doesn't bring any value to the running back room. At least none that I can see. No, yeah. He could be a career punt returner. Maybe. That's fine. I don't know. That'll be fine. Have him be the, have him be the kick returner or whatever. That's, that's fine. As far as like just pure running back is concerned. I don't see what I saw when he was a freshman. I don't see that anymore. No, no. I mean, I dude, I completely agree. And, and here's my thing. And you mentioned the, you burned his red shirt playing special teams thing. The hell does that matter at this point for this coaching staff? This is do or die. We all got notifications on our freaking phones today highlighting Justin Fuente as the premier hot seat guy in college football after this loss. Now, we don't know how this season is going to end. That may or may not be true, but we don't need to worry about getting dudes reps because we burned their red shirts. We need to worry about keeping our jobs and winning football games. I mean, who knows? Maybe they truly do believe that Malachi Thomas is as good of a running back as Raheem Blackshear and Jalen Holston and Keyshawn King or whatever. But we don't have, we're not Nick Saban. There's no job security. There's the opposite of job security. We don't have time to be playing games. And based on the way that King played in the first half of that football game, it was somewhere between disheartening and confusing for me to not keep feeding him the rock. Uh, again, at, at this point, I don't really think it matters who carries the ball for Virginia Tech. There, unless unless you are committed, I don't know why this is so funny, Mike. But unless you're committed to to using the quarterback in the run game fifteen to twenty times a game, this running game just isn't going to work. That's the only way that this running game has really ever worked when Khalil Herbert hasn't been on the on the on the field. It is funny. And we're going to move out this topic because we are running out of time. But I will say, I don't believe Raheem Blackshear is Khalil Herbert. I just thought he was having the best game, and I thought it was kind of crazy. No, he's not Khalil Herbert, but he is explosive, and he's someone that you can utilize. And I don't think that they've utilized him effectively throughout his career. Highest ceiling, 
and was having the best game. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. And it was a little bit confusing to me. They didn't keep going to him. But, Ricky, that's the exact point I was looking to transition into. Braxton Burmeister. The numbers are not incredibly impressive. I mean, 15 for 30, 184 yards, didn't have a passing touchdown. He threw an interception. He was the team's leader in rushing with 49 yards on 10 attempts and that clutch touchdown. But the theme here is given the grit. And we talk a lot of that grit in Blacksburg, Virginia, when we're talking about football. I think he exemplified that in a big way, given the injury situation. Mike, you talked about how the difference between mediocrity offensively and something near the ceiling was whether this coaching staff was willing to unleash Braxton Burmeister. We also talked about on this podcast about the potential that he was injured already coming into the game or coming into multiple games before this, keeping all that in mind to what extent were you satisfied with the amount the coaching staff unleashed Braxton on Saturday? I thought he played his best game at Virginia tech. Like (laughs) he ran the ball. Well, I mean the, he came in, you know, after getting hurt, had the touchdown run, he made a bunch of big time throws on third down. The only, I mean, I, I look at the one throw uh, down the sideline to Trey Turner as one Turner could, should have caught. I thought it was Burmeister's best game. Ricky disagrees, I think. I thought it was his best game. Hey, Ricky gave all the credit in the world to him, and I don't think I've heard Ricky give much credit to Braxton Burmeister in the past. What did you think, buddy? Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with giving the guy credit for, for gutting it out. Um, but dude, you don't get to go 15 of 30 and not throw a touchdown and say it's your best game in Blacksburg. And if that is indeed the case, if that's your best game in Blacksburg, then you're not very good. Has he been very good? <laughs> no, but he's had better games than that. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I'm pulling up his game log now. Um, I mean, he, he went 19 of 31 with two touchdowns, no picks against West Virginia. So that's, that's worth something, but um, I mean, look, it's close. It's closer than you thought, though. It is closer than you thought, which I don't know is a good thing for Virginia Tech. Fans. It's not. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely isn't. Um, no, I mean, that would be a look, bad thing. Look, Braxton yeah. Burmeister is a limited quarterback. We knew this coming into the season. When you take a limited quarterback and you damage him, he becomes even more limited. And we saw that, especially late in the game um, after that shoulder injury. Even when Braxton Burmeister is healthy, he's an average quarterback at best. This is who he is. He's not going to get any better at this point in his career. This is, this is where we're at, okay? Um, fans can be upset all they want that Hendon Hooker's having a, a blast in, in Rocky Top, and Quincy Patterson is trying to do his best Trey Lance impersonation in the middle of nowhere. But and I give, I, I, he seems like a great kid. I, I, I love his demeanor after games. He obviously cares. This means a lot to him. A lot of quarterbacks would have just said, F this, I'm going to sit on the bench. I mean, his, his touchdown run in the fourth quarter was one of the, the grittiest of gritty plays I've ever seen. And we Justin, love Fu- Justin Fuente must have been on cloud nine 
while watching his quarterback, who was probably also on cloud nine, but for a different reason, run and make a Houdini act. The Percocet game, baby. Percocet game. (laughs) Braxton Burmeister eye dilation check is on tap. Yeah. I saw I saw the uh I saw people calling him Braxton Perkmeister. <laughs> I don't remember I don't remember off the top of my head who it was, but uh I'll I'm to, pretty I'll sure it was our good friend Don V. Oh, was uh, it really okay? Who... Shout out Don V. As Don V says, shout out, shout out this guy, shout out that guy, shout out Don V. That is impeccable. Braxton hey, If he can still make the reads. Oh my God. My oh, bad, Don V. Man, that's again, that's again, I give the kid, I give Braxton Perkmeister credit. He went out there, he, he, he gave it everything he had. Well, he's, he's just limited, man. This is, it, it is what it is at this point. I've been trying to tell people this for what, two plus years now. Braxton's not going to be the savior for this offense. He's going to have to have some help around him, and the help just isn't on the roster. And this is the offense that you're left with. You're left with an offense that struggles to move the ball consistently. You're left with an offense that um, is not going to be capable of blowing anybody out, as Justin Fuente said. Every game is going to be a three-and-a-half-hour stomach ache, to borrow a phrase from Justin Fuente from 2017. And what's worse is that behind Braxton Burmeister, there isn't a quarterback on the roster that Justin Fuente trusts to throw a pass. Because Connor Blumwork threw two passes in this game one of which was air mailed and the other was picked off on a two-point conversion attempt well the good news is now he's out for multiple weeks so hey, you don't man. have to worry about him hey the Knox Kadem thing that I'm sure Rick was about to get to remember what Justin Fuente said he really trusts Knox Kadem yeah, yeah in theory and that's a real easy <laughs> hey by he, the way no easy question to answer when you got a bunch of healthy quarterbacks in front of Knox Kadem he he trusts Knox Kadem to stand on the sideline. Yes. If he and, really trusted and, and Knox to hold Kadem, his helmet. We would have seen him Saturday, Rick. We would have seen him Saturday. Yeah. And, and, Give me and, Chase Muma. And, 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 and in all seriousness, I, I, I say this with the utmost honesty and sincerity. If Braxton Burmeister cannot go and Connor Blumwork is out for the foreseeable future, it seems, and Connor, hope you get well. It's Taj Bullock time. I, uh, enough of this fooling around. Clearly, the, the the coaching staff does not trust Knox Gatum outside of holding his holding his his pants up and holding his helmet. Give Taj Bullock a chance and see what the kid can do. And I want to say too, like Taj Bullock, he's been down on scout team and he hasn't gotten a lot of like uh, meaningful reps with guys who are playing semi regularly. And I get all that. But you don't trust Knox Kadem, a guy who has been getting those reps regularly. So what difference does it make? Just yeah. throw him out there at that point, right? What difference does it make? Like, okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, you have – and I get – look, I get the, I, I get the argument from a, from a long-term developmental standpoint. You have to decide what's going to be more valuable, right? Taj Bullock as a fifth-year senior who doesn't have a who – who didn't burn his red shirt or Taj Bullock getting experience and meaningful snaps in year one as a freshman. And I think the question needs to be answered by Justin Fuente and his staff. When is Taj Bullock going to be a guy who makes an impact on your roster? If the answer is, I think he could be the starting quarterback next year, 
then you have to try to get him reps in that specific scenario, in my opinion. And also, and also too, who's to say that he's going to be around for his fifth year as a senior if he doesn't see the field? Quarterbacks transfer at record rates now. So if you've got a quarterback who's half injured in Braxton Burmeister and he's doing the best he can at this point, your backup is someone that you don't trust to throw the football and he's out for, for maybe the rest of the season or at least – for most of the season, your third quarterback is someone that you claim to trust, but you clearly don't. How, how, how does that work for Taj Bullock then if he's sitting behind all three of those guys, at what point does Taj say, look, it doesn't matter what happens in front of me. There could be every one of those guys could test positive for COVID and I'm not seeing the field. (laughs) Well, our, our, our good friend, DJ Harvey's dad tweeted, um around the time that we started this podcast bb3 is out it might be time to let youngin at taj b underscore one two spin it nothing against the other cat we recruited him for a reason what we got to lose he's the future right let's see what he can do let their youngin spin it and he did well on the first couple drives. Well, he has not played any drives yet, so that is not totally true. But if that's a leak, you heard it here first on Hokey Hangover podcast. Uh, but no, I would, I would, if I was Justin Puente, at least disagree. Throw whoever is going to give you the best chance to win, regardless of whether Justin, that's a ten said- to fifteen chance. To, you know, if it's a five percent differential, play the better kid. Taj played four games his senior year of high school. Yeah, 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 you're right. I mean, Justin said on Monday that that Taj is not game ready. I bet your ass Taj is game ready by the end of this week. Will he be, though? I mean, I was always I mean, about Hendon. I mean, I mean, Justin was wrong when he said that about Hendon when he was behind Ryan Willis. But that's like three years in the program. This is an... You know, 18, 19 year old kid. I don't know. He's how gonna have to be game ready. I mean, tech tech has been through two and three quarterbacks multiple times throughout Justin Fuente's tenure. Yeah. And if you if you've got number one is already banged up and number two you don't trust to, to see the field, well, number three is not that far away from seeing the field. Fuente did say for what it's worth that Bullock would be elevated from essentially the practice squad, right? He will not be the scout team quarterback because they need to have him ready because Blumberg's gonna be out for a while. So would he be ready? Would he be ready to like be put into a football game by this Saturday? Yes. That that's obviously what I'm saying. Not uh, yeah, and and obviously not with the full playbook, but he'd be ready to at least take a snap. I would think. In fairness, the new scout team quarterback was the guy slinging the ball best in intramurals yesterday. <laughs> like, we are right. running out of options there. Yeah. We are running out of options there, without a doubt. I mean, I guess my last are we, question. Are we referring to the immortal Ben Locklear? Is that, who, is that who we're talking there. about? You're outsmarting me there. Is I he, he going to be the next Chase Muma? Bring back Muma. He's got one year of eligibility. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, my last question I had for you guys was, what does the future hold if Braxton is banged up? It's not good. Like I'm not. That. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Hashtag Taj time. 
Yeah, I, I think the answer is Taj. I don't know. Here's what I'll tell you the future holds. My friends who spent money on tickets to this Pittsburgh game will be moderately disappointed in moderately. how they allocated the, the dollars that they spent on there. They will be moderately disappointed and severely work. drunk. <laughs> well, the second I can promise. The second I can promise. All right, real last thing. Wide receiving core, Trey Turner goes six receptions for 80 yards. He has that key drop on the final drive. Tavion Robinson, six receptions for 53 yards. Numero uno and numero dos, put them in whatever order you want, account for 73% of passing yards, more than half of the receptions. Did you feel like there was a difference in the separation there? I mean, Notre Dame's a good team. They got high-end talent in their defensive backfield. We were a little bit worried about this group. Do we feel better about them after today or after Saturday? I mean, there's no depth in that room. Yeah. I, mean, you, I thought we you, had depth there. That was the, that was the narrative going in. If yeah, you it was. Okay, well, there, that speaks to narratives. Yes, okay? and we had a narrative about depth <laughs> on the interior defensive line, too, that we debunked earlier in this podcast, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> so if you didn't – if you thought that this Virginia Tech offense couldn't get any worse – Boy, let me tell you, if something happens to Trey Turner or to Tavion Robinson, put those dudes in bubble wrap from yeah. Sunday to Friday because, good Lord, th- this offense just would not function with without one of those guys. I mean, yeah. look, I, I, I don't – like, Trey Turner has not gotten any better since he got to Blacksburg. I think he's a capable receiver – and I, I think he, I think he tries hard on the field, but he just hasn't developed. Tavion Robinson is developing. He is getting better. I think the longer Tavion stays in Blacksburg, I think he's going to be even better than he already is. And right now he's definitely earned his role as a starting receiver at the power five level, but the guys behind him are just not making an impact. Dwayne Lofton, not doing anything. Jaden payout pay Sorry. I'm not sure how it's exactly pronounced because we never hear from him because he never plays. Haven't seen much of anything from him. Nick Gallo. We're not seeing much from Nick. He had two catches for 13 yards in this game. Uh, Drake Dulius, no impact in the passing game. Caleb Smith, two catches, 19 yards. This group of pass catchers just does not have the depth and the breadth of talent capable of taking pressure off of the quarterback and it makes it a lot easier when you only have two guys you really have to key in on being Turner and Robinson and you can just kind of you know man up everyone else that makes it a lot easier for opposing defenses and in turn it makes it a lot harder for Braxton Burmeister yeah I mean Caleb Smith's put on the field and he plays a lot of snaps because he's a really good blocker and he is a pretty reliable possession receiver if he's thrown the ball, but he's limited, right? He's, he's not a deep threat. He's not a guy that could run every, every route in the tree. He's a guy who can work the middle of the field a little bit and can work a comeback route a little bit. And he has really good hands and he's a very good blocker. So that's why he's physical. He's physical. And he's, he's been, he's been good in that role for Virginia tech. Tavion, as far as just pass catching is concerned, I agree, Ricky. I think Tavion Robinson is developing in a way that Trey Turner has not over the course of Trey Turner's career. Of course, we know Turner's a little bit older, but Tavion's developing. And I think he has the potential to be a very good receiver for Virginia Tech. Trey Turner has played well the last couple of weeks. 
if Trey Turner has any professional aspirations, NFL or otherwise, he's got to make that catch at the end of the game there. Um, he's got to make that catch. Burmeister had a pretty good throw there on the deep ball. Was it slightly overthrown? Sure. Should Turner have caught it? Yeah, probably. So if Turner has any professional aspirations um, beyond this season or next season or whenever he decides to stop playing college ball, he's got to make that deep catch. Otherwise, pretty happy with the way Trey, Trey Turner played in that game on Saturday, and I thought Tavion was good too. But yeah, the, the depth is an issue in the wide receiver room. You got a lot of guys on the roster that can play receiver, but none that can actually play receiver. So that's, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of got a lot of WRs next to the name on the depth chart, but yes, guys who, who get snaps yes. contribute in a meaningful way to this point. All right. Well, I think we have covered. <laughs> I, I thought it was all fine. Base. I mean, no. I mean, that's. I don't. I don't disagree. Uh, but I think that covers all the bases. We have gone for roughly thirty minutes longer than we intended. But what this podcast served as was an airing of grievances. And Mike has a bed, so we want him to get out of his garage. So gentlemen, before we go, any last words for the folks at home? Uh, Besides the general rate review, subscribe. I want to remind everyone that despite all of the trash that we just talked for the last hour and a half, the season's not over, right? So tech, if tech is able to pull out a win against Pittsburgh, things, this entire season looks dramatically different. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that that's likely, but it's possible. And um, it's, again, I, I said it at the open, this is such an odd situation. I've never seen a football team, be in the situation where they are both against the ropes and their backs are against the wall, but they're also in a a position to take a commanding control of their division. I've never seen this before in my life, but that's where we're at right now with Virginia tech football. Yeah. And, and the one thing I'll add to to what Ricky said, because he's (laughs) had a lot of good points all night. I've just kind of been adding to to them is that Virginia tech is not quitting, right? This team is not quitting. They're still playing hard, which is something we haven't been able to say about. Yes, this is not 2018. This is not at least not right now. Nope. <laughs> nope. Now could it get to that point? Sure, but it's not there right now, and we no. haven't been able to say that out of, you know, there there have been several Virginia Tech teams over the last few years that have faced adversity and have rolled over. This doesn't seem to be one of them. And yes, situational football has been a problem and will likely continue to be a problem for the rest of the season. I'm not going to bank on it getting any better, but I could hope it gets a little bit better because really, if you look at each game, it's a few plays here and there. By and large, Virginia Tech is giving themselves opportunities to win football games. That's all you can ask for. Now, in addition to that, what we can ask for a little bit more of is just better situational play calling and offensively and defensively and better execution here and there. And that's going to be the difference between Virginia Tech bottoming out and being a team that's a lot worse than we expected or being a team that gets through ACC play and surprises people a little bit because there has been some good football being played. It's going to come down to whether or not Virginia Tech can execute in situational um, in different situations throughout throughout the game. And that's going to be kind of what we're going to have to pay attention to moving forward, as is always the case with this team. Please, Brad Cornelson, stop running the short side sweeps. Yes, don't do that anymore. Please. 
all points correct, all points <laughs> taken. And this has been a lot of fun, despite the somber and lackluster nature that we came here to discuss. I, I tried really hard to smile more in this podcast. I tried. I honestly, hard. Ricky, I your ass was smiling a lot, but <laughs> I think that's just because we're trying to be funny. But it's it's good. Uh, it's good content. It's good to be back together. It's good that it's not all over yet, because Pittsburgh's coming up, and we'll talk about it relatively shortly. <laughs> Until then. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy the middle of your doldrum work week. And until then, as always, go hooky. Mm-hmm.